Well, welcome back to jo to Jan uh, Jan uh, Bomer. Sorry, we seem to have had a slight technical hitch on our link there to Germany, but I'm glad that Jan is now back with me. We were talking, Jan, about your connection with Penn State. So tell us a little bit more about what your role is there. Yeah, so my role, I mean, right now I have to say I'm taking some time off of academia to focus basically full-time okay. on the industry, but my role there was and it will be um, being an assistant professor trying to push the connection between academia and the industry in the realm of sports uh, with a specific focus on sports journalism and sports media in the you know social media and new media area right um, I'm working closely with uh, the Curley Center for Sports Journalism with John Affleck a very great colleague of mine um, we're trying to involve students as much as possible. We're taking them abroad. Um, they've cover, covered the Paralympics uh, in Rio. Um, they've covered baseball in Cuba, which is um, a great thing for students because their stories actually get published and they get a chance to not just write stories but also do a full multimedia coverage of that. So that's, that's the teaching aspect of it. Um, I'm also teaching data journalism and trying to implement these new media style of reporting into our traditional journalism curriculum so okay, that's yeah. that's that teaching part that i'm involved with well look um, jan can i just sorry yeah. to interject there and i know we've got lots to talk about and we've got a free run at uh, everything over the next half hour or so uh, i just want to touch upon something there that you've highlighted very strongly and and maybe is really our connection this link between academia practicing and obviously making it student-centric. And, and we can talk a little bit later in the interview about how perhaps there is some blur, particularly in journalism and new media. But tell us a little bit about the engagement that those students get from real live experiences, Jan. Yeah, I mean, we're trying to bring in as many professionals as possible, just for students to hear them talk. Yeah. You know, you, you learn a lot about the ideal world of journalism in the classroom, but we all know and we have to be realistic that that's not always the case. Journalists have to be their own marketeers. They have to prom promote themselves, especially on social media. That's a big part of what we try to, you know, teach them basically outside of the classroom and make them aware of, yes, you know, journalism is still a very relevant field, but it has changed quite a bit. You cannot expect to work at your hometown newspaper for, you know, 35 <laughs> years and that's be your career and you the only thing you have to do is write. Yeah. We need to prepare them for the real world and get them the real world insights of what the field of journalism or, you know, in general, the media has become. That you kind of need to be a jack of all trades but still find your niche that you can actually strive in. So we, we try to expose them to all of these different fields. Journalists can be data analysts, especially when you think about sports. That's, that's another different layer that has come. You know, it started in baseball, sabermetrics, and people focusing more on statistics in the sport itself, but then also in the reporting of that sport. Yeah. But that has taken an entirely new dimension um, you see the rise of fantasy sports, of esports. These are all new fields that now also have to be covered in journalism by journalists that, with a very traditional skill set, might not be prepared to do it. What? So, taking the trends from the industry and trying to bring them into the classroom, either as 
an entire class that does that, or even quicker, because we all know academia, you can't just revise an entire curriculum within a semester. Yeah. Um, we just try to bring in people to talk about that, have guest lectures within our regular reporting classes that talk. I mean, one of the things that is so, so apposite here and so on trend, if I can kind of use that phrase that we're kind of probably getting used to using more and more in our fields at the moment is Dr. Bill Sutton, a good colleague of mine from the University of South Florida, uh, was over here bringing some students to the UK uh, on a kind of seven-day global festival, including a conference. And in his keynote address, he made that very seminal point that you've just made, Jan, that we need to take the classroom out of the classroom and give them real experiences. But, you know, there are so many different ways uh, that, that, that that can be a- achieved. And, and I think it's so refreshing uh, particularly from somebody uh, as renowned as yourself to be talking about this. One other thing that I think is very relevant in some of the introductory comments that we've made so far is making, I suppose, relevancy in academia to new trends and the changing face, changing landscape, not only of journalism, but the whole sphere uh, of communications perhaps can you, you can tell us a little bit about the, this intersection if you like and particularly new media social media tell us a little bit about your thoughts on how this relates very much to a, a practitioner obviously which is now what you're talking about doing a little bit more but also yes. in academia as well absolutely i think one of the biggest criticisms and you know we alluded to that a little bit earlier is that academia is always in the in the ivory tower, you know, yeah. academics always have that ideal look on things, what social media is supposed to do, um, but that's not happening, right? We, we all yeah. know that social is for straight business purposes, driving revenue, and that has not a lot to do with the initial purpose that was researched in academia, and I think that, you know, bringing that shift in there and, and finding a good combination, I think it only works you know, if you, if you take both things into account, if you take into account that there is something, you know, that academics want to know, yeah. but that can also inform professionals, right? I, one thing that I teach to my students when I teach a social media class, I say, I do not teach a specific platform. I do not stand here and tell you this is how you, you know, use Facebook per se. Yeah. Now, of course, that's a part of it. But I want what I want to do is equip you with the underlying knowledge of how social media works and why people behave in a certain way that will prepare you and take away the fear of all the new platforms that come. Because if we've seen one thing is that the media world is changing so quickly in an unprecedented pace that it would be a big mistake to prepare a student for one particular platform. And then they go out into the industry two years later and they say, why are you using... Snapchat, it's, you know, it's dead. Yeah. Or why are you using, you know, MySpace? You know, when, when we started out, we thought MySpace was the <laughs> biggest thing ever. You know, it made bands very popular and all these kinds of things. But, well, if you were only trained on MySpace, that wouldn't really work anymore. That would have no benefit. But if you learn why people like something on MySpace, why they flock around certain accounts, you can translate that knowledge into any platform that comes along and I think that's where academia comes in because they have the time academics have the time 
to take a step back and try to kind of compare and contrast the motivations for using specific platforms and then establish a framework that can then be used in a very practical way. I mean, one of the things that is so enlightening in this conversation, Jan, is uh, the energy and the real desire, you know, as academics, perhaps we're always using the why factor. Uh, uh, but equally, I think, as you relevantly and rightly said, that we now have to be real uh, and this real connection, you know, business is business and results orientation and, and making things work. But, you know, we've got to underpin it with the knowledge and, and, and everything else. I think it was, I, I can't remember exactly the, the citation here. Professor Jenkins, I think, talking about mass communications and how they've changed and people, you know, like students can be their own voice in their own homes and, 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 and really the revolution that's almost the evolution and revolution that's taken place in the digital and the social media space. Perhaps tell us a little bit about, about now this transitional, if it is a transitional stage for you um, Jan and what you're doing uh, in, in this digital space as a, as a kind of practitioner or as a consultant. Yeah, I'm for me, it's always I always wanted to do both, and right now, um, for personal reasons and because a great opportunity came yeah. around, I'm, I'm focusing more on the industry than I used to. Um, but what I'm doing is basically what I was. I'm trying to practice what I preach. Yeah. Right? I'm, um, I'm currently working for a big Japanese car manufacturer, um, trying to improve the digital operations in Europe and, and especially in Germany, which is you know my my home. Um, and I'm trying to transition then from just doing something to doing it with a purpose, right? Yeah. Setting up the entire flow. What is our goal with our digital digital operation? What what key metrics are we driving? A lot of it coming from a data perspective. Um, a lot of times, yes, everybody knows big data is kind of the buzzword out there that we have we have to do something with data, we have to do some modeling, we have to have some predictions, we have to have KPIs that we try to fulfill. But the big policy here is that a lot of times people that are not familiar with that space, and not necessarily just academics that can do that, but statisticians, you need to understand what these things mean and how they connect to what you actually want, how they connect to what your customers do in the digital space. And I think filling that gap is what I'm trying to do here is um, trying to, I always say it's data powered but theory driven. Right. Uh, what, I, what I'm trying to do is not just have numbers on a report that you hand out on a Monday morning, but doing so with an actual background of, okay, this happens because... And is this actually good or bad? Yeah. Because that's something that's missing. People always, you know, as soon as they have numbers, they like to assign, you know, a plus or a minus or a red or a green arrow <laughs> or whatever it is. And then the upper level management just looks at, at that arrow and says, oh, my God, you know, our numbers go down. And yeah. they're not putting it into any relation. And, you know, bringing some expertise, some why to that discussion and some, you know, no worries, you know, it's just a natural flow of things, people flock to this, if it's, you know, whatever underpinning there might be for a specific trend, um, to bring that into a very hectic, as I 
as I see the entire industry, the entire industry being in a very hectic state of affairs. Everybody's trying to make a move. They know they have to do something with big data, but not everybody knows it. I think that's kind of the a very interesting time to be in the industry and to kind of work on that and trying to put this on a solid foundation. I mean, Jan, at the moment, um, and without necessarily kind of crystal ball gazing or, or, or maybe even be slightly, uh, you know, provocative or slightly, um, I suppose, thinking dubiously about digital and big data. I mean, there is a, there, there, there is a, a, there is a, a notion, I suppose, that digital is everything and, and big data and you've got to be in there. You've got to be, uh, inhabiting this new world, this digital space. Do you think there's enough education or do you think there's enough knowledge or do you think there's enough, uh, acceptance of it? Uh, from um, a, a real proactive point of view, or do you think perhaps people just say, well, we'll do digital because everybody is doing it? What? How do you approach that, and maybe how do you deal with either that proactivity or in some cases negativity, Anne? Yeah, to be honest, for me right now, it's more of the opposite, that okay. people are focusing too much on the digital. Um, when, you know, in my case, you're trying to sell cars, and a lot of people, yes, <laughs> yeah. digital is a part of it, but you're not selling the car because of a tweet. Fine. Great. That's, that's yeah. just not happening, right? Yeah. And, and people tend to kind of cling to the things that they can quantify. Yeah. Um, and when you have a very big company in a very big country with a lot of car dealerships, there are a lot of variables that you cannot measure. Yeah. You know, foot traffic, people just having traditional word of mouth, people just buying the same car for 20 years straight. Yep. Things you cannot really put into your predictive model of what you know from your website. Uh, um, and actually, I find myself more in the uh, in the space of kind of bringing these two things together and getting and generating some understanding for, okay, how does the digital world as a very important but still only a part of the entire space of, you know, media, advertising, whatever it is, how does that play in there? But how do we also account for some other variables that we cannot really see on our website? So these, these are, that's the space that I find myself in. But I, I know from a lot of other colleagues that do work in other companies that might not be as digitally savvy as, as the ones that I have contact with that see the exact same problem that you talked about, that they say, okay, yes, we have to have a Facebook page, but we don't actually know why. <laughs> we just have it because everybody has it, and we post some stuff, and then they are surprised that it's not working. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I have to come in here. I mean, I do go back a long way. I'm, I'm not embarrassed to say that. But, you know, we we must talk about things like sales and we must talk about things like, you know, marketing results. And, you know, I, I can almost think aloud here relaying a story about a dealership. It was a car dealership in another life I had where I was um, sales director of a, a big radio station and talking about the impact of the results and I think the equation worked out something like out of 400 cars sold, they claimed that 90% of them had been either people walking past the showroom or phoning up the dealership. When in fact, you know, those things happen, but they happen because of various prompts and other influences on that decision. And clearly this is how we're 
kind of hopefully in digital and other things through knowledge, academics uh, and giving obviously uh, foundations through theory as well as practice. So a good point made and something that I'm sure not only my listeners but many, many other people need to grasp a little bit more fully. If I can kind of move the... Sorry, did you want to come back on something there? No, I, I just wanted to completely agree with you and I think one of the... The other buzzwords that's going around along with big data is attribution modeling. How right. do you actually put these all these touch points that people have? Because I completely agree with you. Nobody just walks past a dealership if he's completely unaware of whatever cars that dealer has. Yeah. Right? I mean that's that's I don't know, a very tiny percentage of people that would actually do that. You know, but these people had other touch points. TV commercials, website, they configure the car online, they at least have a vague idea of what they want before they walk into the dealership. Absolutely. Accounting for that in, you know, some form of model is very difficult because how do you track out-of-home contacts if they just saw a big banner somewhere? You know, these kinds of things are very difficult to take into account. I think that's where a lot of work will happen in the next couple of years to actually put together models that, you know, paint a clearer picture of that process. And that's not just for cars. I mean, that's for all stuff, retail that applies to sports, to tickets that people buy. You know, some people would say, yeah, they they, they walk downtown and then, oh, yeah, there's a game today, so let's buy a ticket. Mm -hmm. But they probably wouldn't have that even in their mindset if they were not, you know, aware of that before at some point so i think that's something that applies all across the field i mean i love that phrase uh, um, you know attributing and 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 the kind of influences that happen uh, you know in our thinking and then ultimately uh, in, in our actions you know and again just to kind of use a social media uh, platform or perspective here you know it's even like students say to you quite often well I did make contact with you uh, Alan or, or Jan I, I sent you an email or I, I, you know I, I sent you a DM in many ways that's yes it's part of the process but it's not the end you know it's it's the beginning it's the opportunity then to have purposeful dialogue to have maybe real communication and i could go off on a, a lot of areas here and, uh, and and i'm sure we will over the coming uh, over coming months and time with you Anne. i wanted to kind of just segue into something not completely different here but i know from obviously um, some of your background that clearly basketball has been a a, a big influence in some of the things that you've done and you've done some writing there for uh, I believe MBA Germany and you're involved perhaps tell us a little bit more about that interest that passion and maybe how it also sits in your kind of portfolio of activities Jan absolutely so I mean I've always liked basketball I started out as a journalist covering either motorsports like Formula One or North American sports with the yeah. NFL the NBA these kinds of things um I spent some time in the U.S. during my undergrad study, so I'd always had that connection uh, there. And then when I went back over to the U.S. to get my Ph.D., that was at the same time the company I worked for uh, before that, they took over the all the official NBA coverage in Germany. So they became basically, when you typed in NBA.com in Germany, you would get the German NBA site that was hosted. Uh, by my former company. Right. Um, and so they asked me, hey, you know, you can get credentials. Would you like to go? And of course, being a sportsman, I don't <laughs> say no. You know, 
Uh, and then it'd be basketball. It was especially fascinating because I think that the NBA is one of the most tech-savvy and advanced leagues that you can get. So just having the chance to talk to not just the players, but also the people in charge of the digital operations of the teams and the league was really fascinating to me. And I thought I could learn a lot, you know, being a student back then, but also maybe help them and all of us understand what's going on, especially, you know, I... I love it because there's so much emotion involved. That's why I love sports. I think that's a very, as being somewhat in marketing and, and media and journalism, that's something that you really like being into because it's it's such a field where people care about. Yeah. Um, so I got the chance, um, got involved when I studied at Michigan State. I, you know, I went to a lot of the Detroit Pistons games, um, but also got the chance to interview Dirk Nowitzki, Steph Curry, Clay Thompson. Uh, a lot of really, really, really interesting people to me, you know, go to the locker room. Every, you know, every sports fan likes that. Yeah. Uh, and I got to do it from a professional perspective, um, honing my journalism skills. Um, that was really, really fascinating. Um, and in the end, I just tried to, you know, stay in touch with the teams, bounce off some ideas. I mean, I started because I, I was looking for a field you know, for, for a field of interest to try some of my new analytic techniques. And I thought the NBA, with all the focus on Twitter and Facebook at the time, was a pretty neat environment to do that. So I posted some stuff on Twitter, some of my analyses, some of my results, some of the graphics I had created. And so I got in touch with a couple of teams because they really liked that stuff. Yeah. They really liked, they really liked to know how people react to what they were putting out. Um, and, and that was kind of the, the start of my, I don't want to say consultancy that I do, but maybe some of the more industry focused output I created, um, trying to develop a model that takes into account, you know, not just how many fans you have on Facebook and Twitter, but also how much TV time did you get? What is your actual market size and all these things to kind of isolate quality of work that teams put in on social media. I think that was that was key. That was what caught some, some attention in, in that professional realm too. They need a way to evaluate and put on a plain playing field what are the Los Angeles Lakers doing that get more likes just because they are the Lakers. Yeah. With maybe the Milwaukee Bucks that do a great job but will never get as many likes or comments or shares because they are in Milwaukee. And trying to find a way to normalize that entire process and look at the actual work output and what works and what doesn't work across teams. Um, that's how I got more in, in, into that professional basketball realm. I mean, I, I think, Jan, um, and we probably haven't got enough time to talk about this, but it gives me a great opportunity to say there will be another interview with you as soon as we can in the <laughs> new year, Jan. But, I mean, that whole, that whole, great, that whole question of metrics and evaluation. And again, I, I hark back to the recent conference we, 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 we were at and some IPA evaluations on metrics and everything. But when you come down back to why social media, uh, and, and, and why the whole community 
communications thing. It's obviously got to have relevancy, purpose, and then obviously uh, outcomes. And, and and maybe those questions that you've just posed, as I say, will part for now. But one of the other interesting aspects, and, and you've probably got a great insight to this, you know, locker room uh, mentality almost, as you refer to, you know, lots of stars, celebrities, key people in sports, you know, they have people doing their social media for them. And there is a view, you know, to sanitise, you know, it, it, it's not really authentic enough. And yet lots of those who do it exceptionally well clearly are producing content and, 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 and voice for themselves, which really does create the uh, almost the uh, the kind of product as much as anything I suppose or the or the real entity that will then produce engagement and real engagement so how would you advise maybe putting your consultancy hat on as well as your experience and, and, and academic hat on as to how individual sports stars and maybe sports properties can really maximize the opportunities that new and social media presents well, they have to be real. I think that people cling to other people, and brands can be seen as actual people as well. They just have to be true. They have to be Fantastic, natural. Yeah. And one of the things that I always say, you know, when somebody asks me, can you help me create my social media? I say, I can help you on setting you up with the why and what I think you should do on, like, a broad range of things but I cannot write your content for you. That is something that has to come yeah. from you, that has to come like with a voice of the company, or it ha when it's an athlete, it has to be you. And I think there are also cultural differences here. So in the U.S., yeah. where a lot of student athletes just grow up doing their own social media, they will do their own social media. LeBron James, Dirk Nowitzki, they do their own social media. On the other hand, Cristiano Ronaldo here, you know, as the soccer player or football player, you know, one of the most popular ones in the world, he would probably never do his own social media because his management would be afraid that something too personal gets out there, Yeah. right? So there are cultural differences too, and for some reason it is still accepted for a lot of soccer players, even though people probably know that they're not doing it themselves. But the biggest thing here is be authentic. You know, use that, give that kind of backstage feel to it. It won't always be real. You won't give people full access. There have to be some boundaries, but you have to let them in to a certain point. Go back, even for journalists, you know, tell people about the process that you're going through to create an article. Show them pictures from you being on the scene. That Show them that you're not a robot. Show them that you're not a faceless entity. That there are people behind it, and show these people. Right? So, if LeBron James, I think it's a great example, shows you a Snapchat video of how he sits on his porch and has dinner. Yeah. People say, but what does that give me as additional value? Why would anybody watch that? But people watch that because they can relate to that stuff. Yeah. You know, they, they say he's a person. He sits there, he has dinner. Yes, he has a fancy car and I would never be able to afford his house. But, after all, he's a person. You know, when I met LeBron James for the first time, he was laying on the locker room floor and singing a children's song that he would sing to his son. <laughs> so he is a regular person. And that's something that has to come out through whatever you do on social media or on any other type of, 
I would say, public communication. <laughs> you know, that's that's why people cling to social media. The, the name says it. It's an entirely social thing. You Absolutely. Know, there are differences between the different platforms. People say Twitter is more of a news, you know, has more of a news character. People put out more of a hard fact kind of persona, but they still create a specific perception of themselves. Um, and when you go across channels, Facebook is kind of a jack of all trades thing that does everything to some extent. But then when you move into, into Instagram and Snapchat, these are very, very personal channels that you kind of have to use in a personal way. It's not a sales channel in the first place. It's a way how you present yourself so maybe you get some initial exposure. Uh, I read some stats recently that, especially on Instagram, um, 80% of people who view a brand post are actually not following that brand. So they're getting this exposure to that through that private-looking content to brands that they're not following already. So that's that huge opportunity presenting your brand as something very personal that has a personality that people can actually build that connection with that then eventually later on will translate into a sale in whatever shape or form that might be relevant to you. I mean, I think, yeah, and that's not quite a stopping point, but if we had to, uh, and sadly like all great interviews, and this has certainly been in that category, uh, we have to draw some summations in and, and, and some close. But in doing so, let me just kind of put my own perspective on what you've just said. This personal and this personality aspect and you know it's almost an exclusive for me today here folks audience listeners students academia practitioners uh we now know that lebron james is a great singer and he can do everything uh that me and you as a, as a real person might want to do so i think that's a nice little uh, very very uh, much a touching point in many ways but very much emphasizes this point about authenticity and reality and real uh, so great to hear that just to close, Jan, uh, maybe if I was doing this interview with you in a few years' time, how do you think the progression might have gone? And I know it's probably a bit of a fastball question, but I'm asking it anyway, just to make some predictions or some projections going forward. I mean, I'm particularly thinking about global here because, you know, I, I've reached out to you in Germany, but you're not just you know as it were you know we're, we're doing this over skype obviously but you know the world now is that global village and, and we can make communication so much easier so how will academia and how will practitioners utilize the future going forward well i think you you make a good point here i think even though we are technically connected to the entire world we still oftentimes live in these little silos yeah. that we build for ourselves and I think the biggest challenge, and I, but I also think the way forward and what we're going to see is that we tear these down. Yeah. This is, within academia, we cannot have a journalism department that's independent from a, I don't know, marketing department. Yeah. You know, they, they used to hate each other. The one side is the evil, the other, you know. Yeah. You didn't want to, as a journalist, you didn't want to talk to somebody in advertising because they were doing the ones misleading the public. <laughs> uh, but the reality is that we are in one space and that we have to collaborate and understand each other. That's what I tell my students. It's like, I know you. if you want to be a journalist, yes, focus on journalism, but you at least have to be able to understand 
what somebody in marketing and advertising does, what somebody in PR does, because yeah. they are playing on the same field. Correct. And you can only win in that game if you know the rules that they are playing by, right? So, and that that was the academic example, but the same is true in in the industry. We're seeing integrated advertising agencies with major clients. I'm in one of those, and that means tearing down the walls that the client had with the agency, but also within the different departments of the client or within the agency, full-service agencies where you don't have one media agency that's there for putting your stuff out there. You don't have one creative agency. They all have to work together because television and online cannot be separated anymore. Um, you won't be able to have one agency that only covers one market. You will have to sync major campaigns across the world. We're seeing that with some of the stuff. I'm doing work on the Olympics now, marketing for, for two brands for the Olympics that are worldwide sponsors. Yeah. So you have to serve that entire market, and you cannot think that a client, because he's in Germany now, like I am, will never see a campaign that's run in the U.S. That's just, that's just unrealistic to believe that people will not make these connections. So... That's a dramatic change for the industry as well, making these connections and working together and kind of synchronizing that workflow across countries, languages, technology, to just give the client and the customer a holistic view of things. Because people don't like to not find what they expect. Yeah. And, and they will because they have access to everything now. So you cannot say... I don't care what my colleagues in, in the UK do because somebody might see a UK version of a TV commercial and say, hey, this is different. You know, why is it different? That's not what I expect from my favorite brand. And then, you know, you have a negative sentiment all of a sudden. I mean, yeah, I'm going to just have to close here, but just one final almost my retort to to what you've said much much shared uh, approach and encouragement and desire in many of the things that you've just summarized there i couldn't agree with you more and we are all together we can't sit in our isolation we certainly can't sit in some of these silos and i love the analogy that we've got to break down these uh, barriers and it may be that we often used to talk quite um in some ways, I suppose, encouragingly and enthusiastically, as though we were superstars, that we can jump through hoops and we can, you know, <laughs> jump over walls. Maybe the time has come to say these walls should never exist anymore. And if they don't exist, it will be much easier then for us to collaborate and to communicate effectively all in uh, this wonderful space and, and, and uh, that we inhabit. And, and I think the touch point that you talk about very much, and I think from our perspectives as international people, because obviously I've, I've taught and worked abroad as well, and uh, I'm very much in this uh, global space that uh, my radio show and, and a lot of my profile in academia and, uh, and, and social media particularly has enabled me to do, gives me this great uh, platform and great assurance. Yeah, and it's been a delight to talk to you today. It's only the beginning, so there will be lots, lots more uh, for us to discuss going forward. But just for the benefit of everybody who's going to be listening to uh, this show, which is going to go out a week on Wednesday, uh, I'll put a date on Twitter shortly. Uh, tell us how we can make contact, how my listeners and audience can make contact with you, Anna. 
Thanks to the internet, uh, you can Google me and some social media profile will show up. On Twitter, I'm at Dr. Bomer, and uh, that's probably the easiest way. That's actually how we connected. Yeah, so, absolutely, um, yeah. Always feel free to reach out. I'm on Twitter. I'm on probably some other social media uh, platforms, but Twitter is the one that I, I think I use most for professional contact and um, just reaching out to people, so that's the best way to reach me as well. Um and that's where you find my email address as well, so feel free to reach out. Jan, a delight, uh, a pleasure, a privilege to speak with you today. You have a great week. We'll keep in touch and take care, and thanks for the interview today. Thanks for having me.